Welcome to this podcast about the history of Australia's engagement with the world. I'm James Curran. I'm Professor of Modern History here at Sydney University and also the International Editor at the Australian Financial Review, where I write regularly about Australia in world affairs. In today's episode, I'll discuss the world system and the key concepts which policymakers and scholars use to explain its nature, the forces which shape it, control change and produce conflict. Australia as a nation state belongs to this system and its policymakers and scholars use these historically derived terms and ideas to make sense of the world and to explain the government's actions. And I'll focus on three key themes and then look at what that means for Australia. So I'll characterise the historical evolution of Australia's place in the world. The three themes are, first, I'll look at the evolution of the dynastic nation-state system which emerged in Europe in the 17th century. Here, I'll be especially focused on the historical background to the idea of power politics and the balance of power. The second theme is to look at the effect of the rise of mass nationalism in the 19th century on the nature of the system, and especially the character of war. And the third theme will be the appearance of universal ideologies and a universal state system in the 20th century. So here, I'll be looking at how liberal internationalism and communism offered universal remedies for the anarchy and violence of the state system. Now, the modern pattern of international relations is probably rightly considered to have evolved from the sovereign state system which emerged in Europe in the early 17th century. It replaced the idea of Western Europe as a community of kingdoms, principalities and city-states, united within what was called the Holy Roman Empire, that is, the successor of the Universal Roman Empire. It assumed that all the princes and their feudal vassals shared common beliefs and values. Now, though in practice that didn't prevent conflict over prestige and land, it did have some meaning. It did, for example, enable princes from many different parts of Europe to join together in the Crusades to win back the Holy Land for Christianity. At the end of the Thirty Years' War from 1618 to 1648, which had engulfed the whole of the continent in a so-called religious conflict between Protestants and Catholics, the Peace of Westphalia, in essence, abandoned the idea that all European principalities belonged to a common religious, moral and legal community. The experience of the Thirty Years' War had shown up the hollowness of the Holy Roman Empire conceit. The Catholic Emperor and his allies had been unable to defeat the Protestant princes, and moreover, as the war had gone on, state interests had proved to be more important than religious loyalty. As the war had proceeded, the combatants, seeking to maximise political advantage, transformed the struggle into one between alliances, combining one set of Protestant and Catholic states against another. In the Peace of Westphalia, this new world composed of the autonomous sovereign states and dominated by dynastic kingdoms was formally acknowledged. It endorsed the principle of, to use the Latin, cuis regio aeus religio, that is, the ruler of each territory would determine its religion. Fears of an anarchic world still troubled many thinkers. A famous Dutch intellectual of the era, Hugo Grotius, while accepting that sovereign states had become the units of the international system, still argued that they belonged to an international community regulated by right reason and the Christian Bible. He declared that, Just as the laws of each state have in view the advantage of that state, so by mutual consent it has become possible that certain laws should originate as between all states, or a great many states. And it is apparent that the laws thus originating had in view the advantage not of particular states, but of the great society of states and this is what is called the law of nations. But Grotius was still too much influenced by an earlier idea of the world. Certainly in the new system, there grew up what might best be called conventions, which responded to the common interests or advantages of states. 
such as the notion of diplomatic immunity and the honouring of treaties. But these lack the essentials of a modern law system, that is, a common value system, a court to deal with violations of the common code, and a sovereign superior able to compel the states to abide by the code. In this way, the new dynastic or nation-state system could be regarded as an anarchical one. Now, the dynastic states of 16th to 19th century Europe were often referred to as nation-states. So in England, France and Spain, and later Prussia and Russia, the dynasties that ruled, the Tudors and Stuarts, the Bourbons, the Habsburgs, the Hohenzollerns and the Romanovs, ruled over a state made up of people who spoke roughly the same language, occupied ancestral lands, and shared the same religion, many of the same customs too. However, it's true that there were marked differences from the modern nation-state. Many of the kingdoms and empires were multinational. Perhaps even more important in this dynastic state era, monarchs did not necessarily belong to the people whom they governed. In England, the 17th century Stuart dynasty was Scottish in origin, and the 18th century Hanoverian dynasty, all those Georges, remember, were German. The people's tie to their ruler was not through national identity, but through hereditary title. The monarch's right to rule and to demand obedience derived from the divine right of kings, not the sovereignty of the people. And all power was concentrated in the hands of the monarch at the expense of the aristocracy and the church. As Louis XIV of France, one of the great 17th century state builders, put it in French, l'état c'est moi, the state, that's me. These rulers were often described as absolute monarchs. Let us look now at the nature of power politics and the balance of power. In this new era, writers and practitioners looked not to the law of nations to limit conflict and protect the state, but to the supposed laws of power politics. In the 18th century age of reason, some philosophers, reflecting on the experience of the state system created by the Treaty of Westphalia, found the basis for international order not in moral principles, but in mechanical laws, which were supposedly derived from the nature of power politics itself, that is, from the inherent desire of all states to defend their national interests, most particularly their own survival. And central to this new view of international relations was the notion of the balance of power. As Edmund Burke, an eminent 18th century British political philosopher, declared it was the balance of power that had been ever assumed as the common law of Europe at all times and by all powers. John Adams, a leader of the American Revolution and one of the architects of the new nation's diplomacy, embraced the idea of the balance of power as the inescapable law governing international relations. It was his considered opinion that There is a balance of power in Europe. Nature has formed it. Practice and habit have confirmed it. And it must exist forever. It may be disturbed for a time by the accidental removal of a weight from one scale to the other but there will be a continual effort to restore the equilibrium. Now, what did they mean by the balance of power, this classical idea which has often been used to account for the behaviour of states in their dealings with each other? Jod Adams partly explains how the principle was supposed to work. He, like Burke, assumed that in the pursuit of their state interests, each power would naturally act, especially through their alliance arrangements, in a manner which would produce an equilibrium among the major powers and in this way prevent any one power from dominating and so threatening their independence. When this balance of power was disturbed, for example, one power suddenly increasing its military and or economic position, now that's 
obviously an occurrence which history taught, is from time to time to be expected. Then as Adams commented, there would be a continual effort to restore the equilibrium, and this was generally done by a realignment of the powers and their alliances. So, according to this theory, the pursuit of the national interest in the world system was like the classical economist's view of the pursuit of individual interest in the domestic economy. In other words, somehow, an invisible hand appeared from behind the scenery to produce harmony and the common good. Now, many questions were left unaddressed in these simple statements about the principle of the balance of power. The most important was, who dictated the means by which the balance of power was to be maintained? And how? How could you limit government ambitions and get them to act in a way such as to preserve the equilibrium? Now, Hans J. Morgenthau, often regarded as the founder of the modern discipline of international relations, and who was writing in reaction to the hugely destructive nationalist and ideological wars of the 20th century, revived the classical balance of power doctrine. In his most famous work, just called In the National Interest, Morgenthau described the balance of power as being like the law of gravity in the physical realm. In his view, nations had no choice but to pursue their national interest and through this means secure a balance of power which would provide a just order and limit conflict. But in his passion to find a scientific theory of international relations which could rid the world of the violence of mass nationalism, Morgenthau failed to ask how it was that If his national interest theory was correct, governments could ignore it and act on other principles. Both logic and experience would suggest that if anything approaching a balance of power gives order to the international system, it's the result of policymakers' calculations and decisions. But here are the questions. If that's right, how, in forming alliances or creating armies, do they determine whether for the purpose of achieving the balance, what they're doing is too little or too much? Now their judgment cannot have precision and they naturally would err on the side of, or indeed seek, if circumstance permitted, a greater security cushion. They cannot help but want an adjustment which would give them not a quality, but a safe margin of superiority over their potential enemy. Indeed, many commentators paradoxically often speak of states fashioning their policies to achieve a favourable balance of power, which of course would not be a balance at all. The high point for this balance of power system came at the end of the Napoleonic Wars when the leading statesmen of the victor powers, Britain, Austria-Hungary, Prussia and Russia, at the 1815 Congress of Vienna, meeting over dinners and at grand balls and in secret conclaves, reached a peace which attempted to produce a new settlement in Europe which balanced the interests of all the dynastic states. And this is certainly the case which Henry Kissinger argued in his Harvard PhD thesis and in his subsequent book on the subject, The World Restored. Like Morgenthau, Kissinger, who later became America's Secretary of State in the Nixon and Ford administrations, was reacting against the clashes of nationalisms and ideologies which had made the first half of the 20th century the most destructive and violent era in the history of human civilization. Studying the work of the Congress of Vienna, he maintained that the secret diplomacy of the professionals had not only produced a peace which respected the interests of all the states, but also provided for an ongoing concert of Europe to meet and make new adjustments whenever disputes threatened the established order. As a result, he claimed that the Congress of Vienna had given Europe a century of peace. That is, for a hundred years, from 1815 down to 1915 in the beginning of the First World War, Europe had been able to escape the horrors of a general war. Now let's turn to the second theme, nationalism and the international system. Certainly the First World War, which ended this long period of relative peace in Europe, 
did seem to represent the coming to maturity of a new era in international relations. In the 19th century, modernisation had given rise to new ideas of social identity and loyalty, namely popular sovereignty and mass nationalism. As a result, ideas of belonging to a people who shared a common ancestry and culture became the source of legitimacy for the state and in the state. That is, these ideas determined the legitimacy of state borders. The principle of national self-determination replaced the dynastic claims of hereditary rulers. Likewise, internally, the only acceptable idea of allegiance was that owed to the sovereign people. These new nationalist ideas posed a fundamental challenge to the dynastic empires. To survive, monarchs could no longer be seen primarily as a head of a prescriptive caste system. To survive, they had to become symbols of the nation or race and fused with their people. And this is what happened to the British monarchy from the end of the 19th century. Indeed, in World War I, the British monarchy was anglicised and so nationalised. The British royal house gave up its hereditary German family name, Saxe-Coburg-Gotha, and adopted the very English appellation of the House of Windsor. This nationalist revolution had consequences for the international system. Even in far-off New South Wales, the Sydney Morning Herald noticed that world politics had entered a new era. Its editor wrote that the Franco-Prussian War of 1870 had, quote, opened an epoch in which the war of the races had begun, and unless divine providence shall intervene, instead of contending dynasties, the races will have to fight for existence. And by races it meant all the new nationalist peoples of Europe who commonly spoke of themselves as belonging to the French race, the German race, the British or Anglo-Celtic race. Even the professional diplomats became infected to some degree with this nationalist virus. After 1870, when the system broke down, the subsequent conflicts were no longer fought by dynastic rulers for limited ends. Rather, these wars were wars of peoples against peoples for survival or supremacy, and they were fought with the savagery of those who saw the enemy as the alien other. These nationalist wars became total wars of the people in arms, and the whole society and economy was, like manpower for the army, conscripted for the war effort. The new weapons created by the technology of a modernising industrial economy, submarines, machine guns, long-distance artillery, tanks, aircraft for bombing, even mustard gas, and ultimately the atomic bomb, were employed without pity and with little restraint. The line between combatants and civilians disappeared. Betrayal of your own country became the greatest crime a citizen could commit. And just as these nationalist wars were fought with total resources, so the belligerents sought total victory and unconditional surrender. As historian Neville Maney has shown, at the end of World War I, Prime Minister Billy Hughes, who represented Australia at the 1919 Paris Peace Conference, was the most strident of the Allied leaders in expressing the call for vengeance against the German people. In answer to those who wanted to blame the German Kaiser for the war, Hughes expressed, from the victor's side, the most complete nationalist view of the war, namely that The Kaiser may have led Germany, but she followed not only willingly but eagerly. Upon the shoulders of all classes and all sections lies the guilt. They, the German people, were drunk with bestial passion, with the hope of world conquest. Juncker, merchant and workmen alike, all hoped to share in the loot. Upon the German nation, then, rests the responsibility for the war, and she must pay the penalty. For Hughes, it did not matter that the German people had established a republic and installed a moderate and democratic socialist government. For him, the Germans as a people were the fixed enemy of the British race and had to be crushed 
so that they could not rise again to threaten world supremacy of the British peoples and the British Empire. Nationalism also encouraged self-aggrandisement, the flattering of a people's ego. As nationalism at the end of the 19th century took hold of Western countries, so the new nationalised states vied with each other to acquire empires. Through this means, the peoples of the metropolitan powers demonstrated their superiority both over the subject colonies and their less successful European rivals. This process that had begun in the earlier centuries as a search for commercial empire became a competition for political empire. The outside, undeveloped, pre-modern world of Asia and Africa was, with the major exceptions of Japan and China, gobbled up, and by 1914 nearly the whole world had been incorporated into the transatlantic European system. And this made the 1914-18 to European conflict for the first time in history a truly world war. The most egregious examples of the tendency for each people under nationalism to assert the superiority of their own racial inheritance and cultural values were on the one hand Nazi Germany's attempt to give effect to its Aryan myth by conquering Europe and either exterminating or incorporating its peoples into a 1,000-year Reich and on the other, Japan's attempt to create and dominate a greater co-prosperity sphere in East Asia, which was intended to give expression to its unique racial mission embodied in the Divine Emperor myth. Let me now turn to the third theme, the role of universal ideologies and the international system, with a particular focus on the post-World War I period. During the 19th and 20th centuries, even as nationalism was remaking the state, universalist ideas of the international system emerged to challenge, at least superficially, the assumptions of both the nation-state and the nationalist state. This new ideological approach to international relations, which derived from the 18th century Enlightenment's belief in human progress, took two forms, liberal internationalism and communist internationalism. While differing about the causes which had in the past blighted international relations, both forms held that the evils of war and aggression could be overcome and that the peoples of the world could live peacefully together and cooperate for the common good. Let's take first liberal internationalism. Now, liberal internationalism had its origins in Britain and America, that is, the powers that were most geographically secure from the centre of European conflicts. The North Sea, and even more, the Atlantic Ocean, provided buffers for the English-speaking countries. They did not have to live permanently and immediately with the threat of invasion from neighbouring powers. Therefore, they did not understand fully why the continental states of Europe were constantly involved in shifting alliances, secret diplomacy and competitive military build-ups and ultimately wars. As a result, among liberals and radicals in Britain, and among Americans more generally, there grew up a belief that the principles and practices which had governed the European state system namely the balance of power, power politics, protective trade tariffs, were expressions of the immoral and undemocratic old order which was responsible for all the ills which beset international relations. They argued that these ideas and practices inevitably led to aggression and war. According to this vision of international relations, if only the voices of the people could be heard, all these evil devices of the old order which had brought so much suffering to humankind would be abolished and peace and harmony would reign throughout the world. This view of international relations was diametrically opposed to that of the power politics or balance of power or sometimes called the realist school. President Woodrow Wilson in setting out America's aims in the First World War provided the most complete exposition of this view. 
By making the world safe for democracy, the people would overturn the old authoritarian and military governments. As a result, territories and people would not any longer be treated as pawns in the game of power politics. Frontiers would be determined on the basis of national self-determination. Colonies would be prepared for independence. Diplomacy and treaties would be open to public scrutiny and judgment. Armaments would be reduced to an absolute minimum. Protective tariffs would be abolished. The organised rivalry of contending alliances would be done away with. Wilson declared that in the new world which would follow from the destruction of German militarism, all nations should henceforth avoid entangling alliances which would draw them into competitions of power and catch them in a net of intrigue and selfish rivalry. There is no entangling alliance in a concert of power. When all unite in the same sense and with the same purpose, all act in the common interest and are free to live their lives under a common protection. And he continued that there must be not a balance of power, but a community of power, not organised rivalries, but an organised peace. To this end, Wilson proposed the formation of a League of Nations, which would be the institutional expression of this idea of a concert of power as opposed to a balance of power. It would be the world's instrument by which to achieve collective security. Through this means, aggressors would be contained and punished by the collective action of the whole world. It is worth noting, however, that both the League of Nations and subsequently the United Nations recognised that the peacekeeping function could only be carried out with the unanimous support of the great powers, which is why the victor great powers at the time of the setting up of these international organisations were given veto powers in the League Council and subsequently the United Nations Security Council. The architects of these institutions at the outset recognised that without all the great powers' approval, any attempt to enforce a majority decision might bring on a world war or at the least destroy these world bodies. Even though Wilson had made the equality of all states, great and small, a principle of his liberal vision, nevertheless he had no quarrel with this special role given to the great powers. After all, I suppose it could be said America was a great power and it had to ensure that the international organisation was used only for the purposes which America had prescribed. To look briefly now at communist internationalism. The Bolsheviks in coming to power in Russia in 1917 also saw in the balance of power, power politics and imperialism, evils which prevented the attainment of a world of justice, harmony and peace. Unlike the Liberals, however, the Communists regarded the rise of capitalism as the fundamental cause of disharmony and conflict both domestically and internationally. They saw the exploitation of the working class by the bourgeois owners of the means of production, distribution and exchange as that which would produce imperialism and oppression and lead to a worldwide proletarian revolution. Thus, when the communists came to power, while they agreed with Woodrow Wilson that the peace at the end of the First World War must be one of no annexations, no indemnities, Nevertheless, believing the capitalist world to be doomed, they initially took no interest in traditional diplomacy. They had no time for international treaties, did not seek formal recognition from other governments, and showed no interest in exchanging ambassadors. Leon Trotsky, the Soviet Union's first foreign minister, expecting a global revolution, said, when he came to office, that all that was needed was to issue a few revolutionary proclamations and then shut up shop. Very quickly, however, Lenin, the leader of the Bolsheviks, recognised that the world proletariat was not going to rise up and that participation in the international system might help the Soviet Union to survive, especially since it was enmeshed in a bitter civil war. 
Stalin, Lenin's successor, was even more pragmatic. He proclaimed the doctrine of socialism in one country, seeming thereby to abjure any attempt to interfere in the internal affairs of other countries and assist with the accomplishment of the communist solution to the problems of peace and justice in international relations. He sought and accepted membership in the League of Nations, thereby seeming to give some legitimacy to the West's vision of liberal internationalism. Likewise, in August of 1939, on the eve of the Second World War, Stalin, giving expression to an extreme form of the doctrine of power politics, entered into a treaty with communism's great enemy, Nazi Germany, for the purpose of dividing up Poland. It is noticeable, however, for both the United States and the Soviet Union, as the relative sponsors of liberal and socialist internationalism, that they identified these universal panaceas for the ills of international relations with their own nation and their own national interests. If you like, it was their form of nationalism, an ideological nationalism as opposed to a cultural nationalism. Because their nations were the source and embodiment of these ideals, that is, unlike other nations they had a universal ideology as their national myth, then they alone could judge whether a particular policy accorded with the international cause. Since their respective countries were the source of these ideas which were to save the world, any states which opposed them were by definition agents of evil. They were evil empires, or were linked, to borrow a more recent phrase, by an axis of evil. In the eyes of the liberal Americans and the communist Russians, the survival of their respective countries was the first requirement for the ultimate achievement of the regeneration of international affairs, and therefore the pursuit of their national interest and security was identified with a universal mission to redeem the world. In other words, the Soviet Union came to see the preservation of Russia as the overriding duty of all communist parties and their supporters around the world. And Woodrow Wilson, at the time of setting out his peace proposals, including his famous 14 points, also identified liberal internationalism with his own country. What he was proposing, he said, quote, were firstly America's principles, the principles that had given birth to the nation, and they were also, Wilson went on, the principles and policies of forward-looking men and women everywhere. In other words, these American principles were the principles of humanity and must prevail. What followed from this, however, was that if the League of Nations or the United Nations did not accept America's leadership, then these organisations could not, by definition, be fulfilling their mission. Without America's guidance, these creations of liberal internationalism might be condemned as irrelevant or as failures that had betrayed their true purpose. The United States spoke for the world community, and if the United Nations did not fall into line, it would be seen to have failed in carrying out its liberal internationalist mission. Moreover, since America's national security was the necessary prerequisite for achieving these ideals, American governments during the Cold War did, in some ways like the Soviet Union, feel justified in adopting every kind of policy sanctioned by power politics in defence of the national interest. That is, it could enter into entangling alliances, help maintain military tyrants, support absolute hereditary rulers, or corrupt one-party states. The cause of liberal internationalism was identified with the defence of America's national interests. When, following the end of the Second World War, these two ideological nations emerged as the two great global powers, they interpreted each other's actions as their ideological nationalisms dictated. As soon as disputes over peace terms surfaced, the Americans came to see the Soviets as red fascists bent on world domination. And the Soviet leaders looked upon the American government 
as the captive of capitalist imperial influences that were aiming at overthrowing the Soviet Union and ruling the world. Now to conclude, where does Australia, as a small to middling nation state, fit into this picture of the historical evolution of the ideas underpinning international relations? First, in classical terms of the state system, Australian governments of both political persuasions proclaim their commitment to the pursuit and protection of the national interest. Now, all governments, of course, centre their statements of aim on this cliché. But for our purposes, the context and the nuances and the use of this language has importance. For example, the Howard government in its 1997 foreign policy white paper, so in other words, its formal statement of its foreign policy aims, claimed to pursue this objective, the national interest, in a more unqualified way than any government since the 1960s. Now, what did that mean and what did it portend? We'll look at that question in more detail later in the series. What does it mean when governments use it now? Secondly, along with this, it's worth noting that both Labor and coalition governments are committed to the American alliance. As a middle-sized power in an unstable Southeast Asia, Australia feels the need for a great power protector. Both Labor and the coalition would seem to agree, without expressly saying so, that the US alliance gives Australia a favourable balance of power in the region or at least a more favourable position, that it would otherwise have if the alliance did not exist. Now, differences of emphasis on this point do arise in changing external circumstances, and throughout the series, we're going to explore those differences. In recent years, of course, this commitment to the American alliance has become even more unqualified than it has in the past. Third, on nationalism. Now, Australia has, like many Western European countries, discarded the old and exclusive and conformist racial and cultural definition of its national identity. Billy Hughes' ideas about Australian nationalism and his attitude to the other has been left behind, indeed denounced. Australian governments have tacitly assumed that there is a consensus that Australian values remain those of the Western world, But Australia's reluctance to assert its westernness has come from a sensitivity to its Asian neighbours and their concerns about earlier race-nationalist policies and identities and the contemporary efforts of what a number of regional leaders conceive to be an attempt to impose western values on their different Asian traditions and cultures. But Australia's reluctance at times to assert its westernness has come from a sensitivity to its Asian neighbours and their concerns about earlier race-nationalist policies and identities, and we have seen in recent years the contemporary efforts of what a number of regional leaders conceive to be an attempt to impose Western values on their different Asian traditions and cultures. For Labor governments, it may also relate to their desire to appear on the world stage as good international citizens. Lastly, where does liberal internationalism enter into Australia's contemporary policies? Certainly Australia's interventions in East Timor and the Solomon Islands in 1999 and 2003 respectively can be seen as self-interested in that they aimed to restore stability to those territories. On the other hand, its attitudes towards these peoples are very different from the imperial attitudes of white Australia from the end of the 19th century. These more recent interventions in East Timor and the Solomons were carried out only with the consent of the people concerned and in cooperation with other Southeast Asian and South Pacific governments. On matters of human rights, the prevention of the proliferation of weapons of mass destruction, 
the protection of the ozone layer and the global environment, there has been a tendency for many governments to act with America rather than the United Nations, although that too has fluctuated. Here, I think it might be said, Australia is divided about the meaning of liberal internationalism. So, keeping in mind that background about the history of the ideas giving meaning to the international system, we're going to look at all of these ideas in future podcasts. Thank you. I'd also like to acknowledge the Indigenous peoples for over 60,000 years who lived on, loved and dreamt about the lands on which I am speaking today. And I pay my respects to their present and future successors who continue to embody their affection for Australia and their enthusiasm for its well-being. This series is produced by Peter Adams for the School of Humanities at the University of Sydney.